talking about our mission, vision, and values. And I presented last week some new language for a mission for us as a church here at West Meadows. And that language, as you recall, for our mission was to invite people to experience a life that is better with Jesus. And how do we go about doing that? How do we live that out? Well, we do it by living out his grace, his truth, and his love. And I want to thank you for, for the positive feedback that we've received uh, following that service through uh, conversations, emails, phone calls that we've had, uh, some encouraging conversations that have taken place. I want to encourage you to continue to start or to continue using that language too. I personally had two opportunities this past week to dialogue with a person from outside of our church uh, who didn't really know me. One of them was when I was in a salon chair getting my hair cut this week. And the common question is, oh, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And then following the awkward 30 seconds of silence, that always happens at that point, we start talking about it. And the natural question that comes up is, well, what church? And where's that? And what are you guys about? What a fantastic opportunity was presented. And I had the chance to say, well, we're a church that's about inviting people to discover life that's better with Jesus. And for the next time, the next number of minutes I was left in that chair, that's what the conversation was about. About this lady's past experiences, about how her life is going in the past and in the present. And we even got to a little bit about what her life could be like in the future if she had a little bit of a different influence, perhaps Jesus, in her life. It's just that easy. It just naturally flows in a conversation. I want to encourage you that when opportunity comes up to take advantage of those moments and to... Uh, to encourage people to experience a life that is better with Jesus. So that's just part one. That's just part one of where we're going in the days ahead of us here. As there's a much larger revealing taking place as we come to understand all the work that's been happening over the last number of months about our mission, vision, and values. So I thought I should probably take a minute here and define some of those terms for you. So the first word, mission. Talked about that last week. Mission is this kind of uh, statement that is based upon the great commission that we have from Jesus in Matthew 28. And we talked about that last week, how some key principles of that, that, that we are a sent people, that we are a multiplying people, that we are a transforming people. Those aspects must exist within whatever language we personally choose as a mission statement for our, our church here to be in line with what Jesus' mission is for the entire church of all time. And so that mission statement is kind of our north, our guiding north star. It's like the heartbeat of our organization. It's, it's the aligning principle for the whole church mission. Then there's this word vision. Now, sometimes vision gets confused with mission. They, they seem to be used interchangeably at times. But, but mission's a bit different. We're going to talk about that in extent today. Vision is more of an understanding of what would it look like if we were successful at our mission? What would that look like? I've always loved the way Andy Stanley describes the word vision. He speaks of vision as the, the picture of the preferred future. It's a picture of a preferred future. Now, in that statement, a picture of a preferred future, it assumes that there is a normative status quo that exists today, but that's different than what exists in the future. It, it, it speaks that there is a, some sort of change that needs to happen from where we are to where we are going. It, it's a preferred future. It's a picture of a preferred future we're moving towards. Now, I said the word change. People get a little nervous when we hear the word change because there's this common belief that people don't like change. Now, I want to challenge that a little bit. I, I think more actually, people do like change. They just don't like change when they don't understand the purpose behind the change. Here's what I mean by that. I think it's pretty safe that today you got up and you changed your clothes. 
Whatever you wore yesterday, whatever you wore to bed is probably not what you're wearing today. You changed your clothes because you saw purpose and reason to do so. People change their hairstyles all the time. Ladies, how often do you go to the salon in different colors, different cuts? I know that hairstyles change. There's other things that change in life. The color of our nails, the color of our hair, the clothes we wear, the jobs we have, the majors we have in school. There's change all around us and people engage in even difficult change. People engage in when they see the purpose and when they see the need behind it. So I don't think change is a problem. Not seeing the purpose behind change is the problem. We're going to talk more about that later today. But this idea that vision is a picture of a preferred future that speaks to something different than currently exists. Now the third one is values. Values are these shared convictions that guide all of our actions. So values are shared convictions. Now the leadership of West Meadows has affirmed six values. And we're going to talk about those in the weeks ahead, but if you want a sneak peek into what they are and to hear a bit of a presentation on them, you need to come to Connections Camp. Because at Connections Camp, we're going to talk about these six values and have an opportunity to dialogue and interact about what those six things are, those six shared convictions that we have. Now, within these values, there are times that there are realized values, things that God has already brought together and instilled within us, that when, when this group of people come together, these are the values, these are the convictions that naturally emerge from what he's already created. But then there are also these things called aspirational values, values that we need to work towards, that we need to help create and foster if we're going to be successful in our vision was a preferred picture of our mission. Make sense? Now, not all of us live in this world, mission, vision, values kind of thing. So I thought I'd use a quick example to help you understand this a bit. Today, if you didn't know, is Super Bowl Sunday, right? And this is the day where the New England Patriots defeat the Los Angeles Rams and win the Super Bowl. And no one disagrees with me. Dave's walking out. He doesn't agree. <laughs> He's got a Rams fan. <laughs> So the New England Patriots are going to defeat the Rams. Now, I don't want you to think about being one of those teams. I want you to put yourself in the spot of one of the teams that's not playing today. There are a whole bunch of other teams that are not in the big game today. And where are their minds set? To the future. Their minds are set upon next year. And they have a mission. And what is the mission of those teams? Their mission is to be the best football team in the world by 2020. So that they can play in and that they can win Super Bowl 54 in Miami next year. That's their mission. But what is their vision? Their vision is not winning the Super Bowl. Their vision is, is a picture of what that would look like. It's more tangible. Their vision is as a team hoisting the Vince Lombardi trophy together with Fans cheering, the whole team is there, there's confetti, there's music, there's some camera comes up to the quarterback and says, what are you going to do now? What does he say? I'm going to Disneyland. I don't know if they do that anymore, but they used to do that every time the Super Bowl, right? This is the vision, it's this picture, it's this tangible picture of what it would look like to succeed at the mission. Now, how are they going to make that a reality? Well, they're probably going to get in a room and they're going to talk about what are the shared convictions what are the things we're going to value in the season ahead so that we can make that vision, make that mission a reality? And they may say things like, we are going to hold each other accountable. Accountability is going to be one of our values. We're going to trust each other. We're going to build relationships that are so tight that there is no questioning, there is no doubt. We just completely trust each other every day, every play. We're going to be dedicated to the highest levels of performance. 
We're going to play for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. These are maybe some shared convictions, some values that they will all collectively adopt so that they can be successful in realizing that vision. Now, if they establish these things, day in and day out, they will know where they're going, they will know why they're going there, they will know who's on the road trip with them, and they will know how they're going to get there. And at that point, they have a great chance of being successful in seeing this fulfilled. Now, all successful businesses, teams, organizations follow a process like this. But some people might wonder, is this really necessary for a church? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's not just good organizational stewardship. That this is actually a biblical principle. And here's what I mean by that. We read in Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Now, the word vision used in here can also be translated as a dream, as a revelation. Uh, quite often in this particular passage, talking about this sort of godly revelation, this godly dream that is given to the people. It's this divine picture of a preferred future for all of the nation to focus upon. And in the absence of this vision, of this dream, what happens? Well, people quickly turn to their own way, their own preferences, their own tendencies, their own desires. One of the great examples of this, and maybe even what the author of this was thinking of when he wrote it, was God's promises and his vision for the nation of Israel. If you've been following our Bible reading plan that we're, we're using this year, the chronological reading plan, it's listed in your sermon notes if you're using the online notes. We've recently read about how God gave a vision to the forefathers of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that, that vision, that promise was renewed with Moses, that the nation of Israel will be numerous and great and that they would inherit a land. And that land was called the promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, given this idea that it was a land of peace and prosperity where, where they would be God's people and he would be their God. But they found themselves in slavery in Egypt, which didn't seem to align with God's vision. But then God steps in and he rescues them from slavery in Egypt. And as they come out of Egypt, they journey to Mount Sinai. And when they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days. And he's gone for a long time as he's, as he's spending time and speaking with God for that time. But the people thought that he had abandoned them. And they said, well, he's this guy, this, this Moses guy, it says, has abandoned us. What are we going to do now? And the leaders that are at the base of the mountain convince all of the nation to make idols, to start worshiping these idols they made for themselves, in effect, abandoning God, abandoning the vision. And what happens when you abandon the vision? You start running wild, which is what happens to them. Now, I would love to tell you that this was the last time this happened in Israel's history, that this was just sort of a blip on the radar for them, that they were always faithful from this point on. But as we continue reading in the months ahead in our Bible reading plan, we're going to see that they become a wandering nation, that they are a people who are known throughout history by their willful rebellion against God. Now, time and time again, again, God would send prophets to warn them, to draw them back to him, to, to reestablish his vision with them. Sometimes they would heed his call. Sometimes they would repent. But it didn't usually last more than a single king or a single generation before they were back to their old tactics again. And eventually God follows through on what he promised would happen, the negative consequences of these actions. He eventually follows through. And Jerusalem is attacked. Its temple and its walls are destroyed. Its gates are burned. And the people are carried off into exile in Babylon. 
Now you may be wondering, why do I begin a message about our vision with such a happy experience about exiles and cities being burnt down? Well, I do so because I want to share with you what happened to one man who was born in exile, a man named Nehemiah, who caught God's vision. He caught that vision for God's people. And he caught that vision for the community of which he was identified with. Now, Nehemiah, I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1 if you have your phones or your Bibles with you. If you haven't got one, grab a pew Bible in front of you. You'll find it on page 383. And while you do that, uh, just bring you up to speed a bit. Nehemiah is a Jewish man who was born in, in exile in Babylon. And somehow throughout his lifetime, he worked his way to a point where he had this position as being the cupbearer to the king, to the Persian king. Now, what that job entails is he would stand like a statue against a wall. And when the king said something like, I thirst, you would run and grab his goblet, you would fill it with wine, and you would present it to him. That was your job. It was considered a respected position. It wasn't considered an exciting position, but it was considered a respected position that allowed him to gain favor and be known by the king. But while he was serving and living in this place, his heart was for the restoration of his people. His heart was elsewhere. And part of the reason his heart was elsewhere was because a few decades earlier, a different king had allowed some of the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the ones who went back and they established some lives for themselves there. And for a time, for a time, restoration had begun. New life had started to come to the nation and to the city, but then it stalled out. That new life stalled. And we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 that this stalling out of the people became the new norm for Israel. And Nehemiah begins to grieve the status quo. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Some close friends come and bring a troubling report to Nehemiah. Yeah, the new temple's nice. That, that new temple I built, man, it's a thing of beauty. You know, some people are setting lives up for themselves. They've reestablished some homes, and they're trying to get some commerce going. But, but to say that things are good, to, to say that things are where they should be, that, well, that's far from the truth. You know, Nehemiah, if you were traveling towards Jerusalem, even from a, from a distance, you could see the cities in shambles. The walls are down. The protection that would keep our enemies out, non-existent. The gates that would welcome people into our fantastic city but borrow those who we don't want to have in, they're burnt. And the people, they live in shame. They live in disgrace. Now, Nehemiah probably never seen Jerusalem for himself, but it's part of his identity because these were his people. This was his community. This was his capital. Even though he didn't live there, he identified with this people in this place. And for far too long, they had lived in despair. And that had become the new norm. And Nehemiah grieves the status quo that had happened in Jerusalem. He grieves to the point where it absolutely breaks his heart. It breaks his heart to the point where he's moved to action. And the action he's moved to is that he weeps. 
And he fasts and he prays and he seeks God's will. You know, as I was reading and studying this this week, a question popped into my head I want to ask you. As you think about this, who is it in your life that when you hear news of things to celebrate, that your heart celebrates with those people? When you hear devastating news, when you, when you hear challenged people's lives, who is it in your life that your heart grieves losses with? Now, many of us are going to answer that question by saying, well, it's our family, our friends, perhaps people within the church. You feel a connection there. And that's all good and that's all appropriate. Perhaps you've moved to Edmonton or you've moved to Canada from a different city or a different country and you know this feeling Nehemiah has where his heart longs for his people, for his homeland, his home of origin. You know, whoever it is, here's the point. Whoever it is, the fact that you respond in celebration or in grief is evidence that that is who you most closely identify with. That's who you identify with. And so when we speak about reaching a group of people, whatever that may be, wherever they may be, a lack of association with that people will hinder your efforts. And so as we look at the wonderful things and the wonderful opportunities that are happening here around West Meadows these last couple of years, I, I kind of wonder, like, like when you hear stories of our partnership that is strengthening and growing with the Community League, when you hear about, about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that we have engaged with in our community, when you hear about the fact that some of these people we're engaging with in the community are now attending Alpha and Boost and Young Family Events and Youth Group and Sunday Morning Service, when you hear those stories, does your heart celebrate? When you hear that there are 15,000 people who live in the vicinity of this church, almost 3,000 of them are children, and that this is one of the fastest growing communities in the city. That, that no, those numbers are going to keep on going. But that means that there is a high, high percentage of thousands upon thousands of people who don't know that a life is better with Jesus. And that we are the only church in that community. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? Do you feel that? Why do these questions matter? It matters because we will never reach people we don't identify with. And we were called that wherever we are planted, wherever we as individuals, wherever we as a church are planted, we are called to be the light of the world. Jesus said that you are like a town that is built on a hill that can't be hidden. That we are to let our light shine before others so that they may glorify their Father in heaven. Now I know that many people here don't live necessarily right in Lewis Farms. But this is where you come to church. This is where you worship. This is where a lot of your social activities, your friends come and congregate. This is where you come to get equipped and built up and encouraged. And this is where the mission exists. Is it part of your identity? For a lot of us, I think it is on that level. This is where you, who have been here for decades, and those who went before you decided to build this church with a vision. With a vision that these pews will be full with a vision that lives would be changed, with a vision that people in this community would be impacted by the good news of Jesus Christ, with a vision that we would be the ones who would go out and to be the light that shines in this area, and that we would invite people to experience here in Lewis Farms that life is better with Jesus. That was the vision from the time that this place was built up until this day. Now Nehemiah realizes that he and his people were not committed to their vision. And so... He decides to confess the past. But at the same time, he claims the future. Let's continue reading in chapter 
1, verse 5, where this is what he said as he came to this point of understanding. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his covenants, or his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. Who are those servants? They're the people of Israel. I confess the sins of the Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees, the laws that you gave to your servant Moses. Then he continues in verse 8. Remember, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, which is where they are currently living, as exiled people in Babylon. But if you return to me, if you obey my commands... Then, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah's prayer first declares his belief that God is awesome. That God is unwavering in his faithfulness to his people. He's unwavering in his promises. His promises are sure. They do not change. There are so many things in this life that do change. God's promises do not change. And all he asks... For people who want to experience and be in those promises, all he asks is that people would abide with him, live according to his commands, his ways, live in relationship with him. But then in full awareness, he, he realizes that Israel hasn't done this. Nehemiah knows that that's not the history of, of, of Israel, that they are a wayward people, and he confesses this to them. However, he also acknowledges that if they would confess if they would catch God's vision again and merge with his will, that there was nothing too great to prevent God from gathering them back together. There was nothing too great. There was no force that prevent him from restoring his people. But notice who he speaks on behalf of in this passage. He speaks and confesses sins on behalf of Israel, the Israelites, the entire nation, and he includes himself and his family in that. Now, we understand that the sins of the past generations led to their exile. That the sins of the past generation led to the defeat of Jerusalem. That, that those are the sins that led to the walls being leveled and the gates being burnt. But Nehemiah was born in exile. So what is he confessing? What is he confessing himself here? Well, when we think about sin, the most common definition of sin that we would have is, is bad things that a person does. Right? We think about sin as these are the bad things a person does. The, the breaking of Ten Commandments. You shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't be jealous. Certainly don't engage in violence or murder. Sins. These things that other people do to us that, that affect and injure us. And these things that we do to other people that affect and injure them. And those things are sinful. I'm not going to tell you they're not. Those things are sinful. But I also want to suggest to you that that is too narrow of a definition. Of sin. It's more than just the bad things that we do. You see, a fuller definition of sin is anything that falls short of God's perfect character and God's perfect will. Anything that falls short of his perfect character and perfect will. This includes all the bad things that people do, but it also includes a category of sins called sins of omission. Things that people should have done, but didn't do. Consider, if you would, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know this, this story from the Gospel of Luke, 
where a man is walking along the road and he is beaten and robbed and left at the side of the road for dead. Now the man who mugged him is guilty of doing bad things. We, we would all agree that, that, that the mugger, the robber, is guilty of, of sinning against this man. He has done the bad things category. That's pretty clear. But if you remember, as the story continues, there are two other people, a, a priest and a Levite, who walk by and they change sides of the road and they keep on walking by. What are they guilty of? They're guilty of sins of omission, of not doing the things they should have done. That's sinful as well. And so by those standards, as we read in Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 23, that all people have sinned, that all people have fallen short of the glory of God. Even Nehemiah, who I'm sure he did some bad things in his life, but that's not the things he's confessing here. What he's confessing here are the hereditary sins of the generation he identifies with, but he's also confessing the lack of present action. He's confessing the fact that there's a lack of commitment to God's vision and to his will. There's been a lack of action. There's been these sins of omission. And so he earnestly confesses the hereditary sins plus the present sins. But at the same time, he turns his eyes towards the future. Now, in churches, sometimes churches do get caught up in the category of bad things. And we know when that happens because it injures people and it often makes headlines in the media. But that's not the most common sins that, that churches are guilty of committing. You see, I think this category of omitted things, of, of sins, of things that the church should have done, but they did other things instead, is actually the category most often present within churches. It's, it's the sin that's referred to as the sin of moyad. Probably haven't heard of moyad before. But recall that where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. That means in the absence of vision, in the absence of a picture of a preferred future that all people are working toward that's in line with God's will and his vision for them, what do the people do? They turn towards their own preferences, their own tendencies, their own desires, and that's the sin of moyad, which stands for madly off in all directions. And that's common, where you find many good churches full of good people doing good things. But remember, we're not talking about the category of doing bad things. We're in the category of good things, but omitted things. You see, and even good things can be sinful things if they fall short of God's will. If they fall short of God's glory and his vision for a church. In the absence of a commitment to a vision, churches go moyad. That's what happens. They do many, many good things. But good things are not always God things. Now, Nehemiah caught the vision for his people. And he starts to move, not just in commitment, but in action towards making it a reality again. And so as chapter 1 ends, he's praying to God to grant him success because he's moving to action now. He is realigning himself and hopefully the nation to join him in moving towards the God things. And so he uses his position as the cupbearer to speak to the king. And it takes him a little while. It takes a while for, for opportunity to present itself. But he's wearing the burden of his people on his face as he brings wine to the king each day. To eventually the king asks him, why are you so sad? And then in a state of fear, because he's addressing the king, he musters the courage to share with the king. King, my city is in ruins. The gates have been completely destroyed. And they're just laying there in shambles. And the people who have gone back there, they, their lives are a disgrace. There's no pride. There's, there's no commitment. There's, there's, there's no hope in that place. 
And so he asked the king, King, would you, would you send me to Jerusalem so I can rebuild those walls? Would you send me to Jerusalem? But may I be so bold not just to ask if you would send me to Jerusalem, but, but that you would actually give me the supplies that I even need. You're the king of this whole region, and, and, and so if I'm going to have supplies to follow through on my task, I need you actually to supply me with, with the resources and the materials that I need to make this a reality. And the king grants him permission. He's given permission to go back. And so he takes a small contingent with him. As we get in chapter 2, in, in chapter 11 and 12, he gets a small contingent together, and he goes back to Jerusalem, not really announcing too much, but surveying the devastation for himself for the first time. And people don't know why he's there, but they know he's from the king's court, and, and he's got a small entourage with him, so they know something's up. And so he calls all of the people together. And when all of the nation who lives in Jerusalem assemble before him, he calls them together, and in verse 17, he says this to them. He says to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. Now I'm sure the people were in silence for a few moments at that point. But then starting towards the back, he saw a shuffling start to happen. And, and he looked and somebody was handing out these hats that said, make Jerusalem great again on them. And they started wearing those throughout the crowd. And he heard in the back and he heard, he heard throw the ball, throw the ball. That's not right. But as, as it got closer and closer, the chant was actually build that wall. That's what it was. It wasn't throw the ball. It was build that wall. Build that wall. And then somebody said, and make Persia pay for it. And so, right. And they did. And they routed. That's actually what happened. Verse 18. It is. Because in verse 18, they said, let us start rebuilding. And then there's the commentary at the end of verse 18. So they began this good work. They began a good work. Where else was a work done that was called a good work? Remember back in Genesis chapter 1? At the end of each day, as God, according to his power, his will, according to his vision, started to create, and he declared it good. Here they had the commentary. They started this good work. They started this God work in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah longed to see new life come to this place. They longed to see his people, his community, and beyond his community, catch this vision that he was given. So that when new life would come, that these walls that were torn down would be rebuilt and they would have protection from the things that they need to keep out of their lives. That they would have new life as people would live free of the shame. They would live free of the guilt of their past sins. They would have hope for the future. He wanted to rebuild this, not just because of the wall, because he wanted to rebuild the nation so that people could experience that life is better with God than the life that they were currently living. That they could live in commitment. That they could live in that promise and in that vision. You see, God is in the business of making things new. He's in the business of making new things. We read this from cover to cover in the Bible. If we go back to creation, we see that, that creation was formless and void, and then God brings new order. He brings new life to the mass that was there. When a person has an encounter with God, he gives them a new name. And with that new name comes a new identity and a new purpose and a new mission. When a person who was hurt or lost comes to God, he gives them hope for a new day. He gives them, instead of the fear for today, he gives them hope for tomorrow. 
the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every morning. That because of him, the psalmist says, we can sing a new song. He gives us a new heart with a new promise and a new covenant. He gives us a new future with a new destiny. And we can know him now and we can know him eternally in his new heavens, in his new earth. See, God is in the business of making new things and bringing new life to people and to communities. But we're not just talking here about new life. That means we kind of add God onto what we already have or we add Jesus' teachings onto what we already have. What we're talking about here is not just more wealth or more success. We're talking about the fact that we die to the old. We die to the old sinful life. We confess that. We leave it in the past and we point our eyes forward and identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and the victory he made possible through his death and resurrection, which means that we were raised to new life. We read this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has passed away because why? The new is here. The new life is here. And when Jesus is brought into a city, when Jesus' name is brought into a community, when it comes into a home, when it comes into a heart, he brings new life with him. That's our vision is this picture of a preferred future so that we here at West Meadows would be known, would be seen by the people who surround us and beyond to be at the heart of new life in Lewis Farms. That we will be at the heart of new life in Lewis Farms. To say something is at the heart. It means it's at the center. It's the hub. It's the catalyst of everything that flows from it. To say something is the heart means that it is the muscle that is pumping life into the body. To say something is the heart is to say that it is the source of love. It is the source of grace. It is the source of truth. It is the source of those virtues. I invite you to imagine with me that if West Meadows could bring hope, the hope of Jesus to a people, could bring the hope of Jesus to a home, to institutions, to public spaces, to the social fabric of the community around us, what would be different? What would be different if we could bring that new life? Now, at first, it might be hard to visualize these things. What does new life look like? I want to give you some examples of things that are already happening as to what that looks like. New life in the community around us is seen through the community events that we, that we have been involved in. Things like extravaganza that's coming up again, Mary Matinee and others we've done that have led to people coming for the first time, not even just coming, but knowing that this is a church. And then walking through the doors, and not just walking through the doors for that, but coming back for a second visit for Boost and Alpha and Sunday morning, where this is new life in them as they're experiencing God's people and God's love for the first time. But it's also new life amongst us as the community comes in to be with us. It's about family time. Whereas we facilitate events such as this, we hear feedback and conversations from people who are connecting the dots between the love we're showing them, the hospitality we're showing them, and the love of God. We didn't even mention the love of God to some of these people who came back to us and said, man, I feel like God loves me. Was the feedback we're getting. We're thinking, how did those dots get connected? And we go, oh yeah, it's not all about us. It's about us being faithful and letting God do his part to connect the dots in their minds and their hearts. And this is some of the feedback that we get as new life comes into their hearts for the first time. It's about homes that had uncertain futures 
Where are my kids going to wander off to? Is the marriage going to survive? And then Jesus is invited into the home. And marriages are restored. Relationships with children are healed. And as we read in Ecclesiastes, when it speaks of the two, when he had a third strand, a strand of three that involves God is not easily broken in these homes. People who have these struggle with some mental health issues who come and find friendship. They find acceptance. They find hope to deal with the struggles that are ahead for them in the days. Schools. We have schools that open a capacity all around us. And we know that there is a voice of culture speaking into those schools. There's a voice of culture speaking into the children, the next generation coming up in those schools. We have growing relationships with our schools. Almost all of the schools we have a partnership with for at least one event a year, if not even a weekly event in some cases. And so we have the opportunity to add the voice of Jesus to the conversation because we're bringing new hope into those places. Then also imagine with me if we were seen as a place of hope and support and encouragement and education. You know, it doesn't matter where you're from, what your background and what your challenge is, all of us deal with certain tragedies in life. All of us will know or experience things like, like marital struggle, divorce, parenting issues, death. These are areas where the church can be present in people's lives and bring new hope and new life. An area where if we see a vacant space, maybe somebody has a vision for it. We can address the need of a lack of public gathering places in this area and, and I don't know, build a park or open a cafe where we can engage one-on-one with people. Whereas new people move into the community or as people who live here have a child, we can be the welcome wagon. We can show up at the door and welcome them to the community and say welcome to the new life that exists within this place. You know, there's different tragedies that hit. If you have a fire, if you need police, what do you dial? You dial 911 because then police and emergency vehicles show up. But what do you do if you have a hurt in life? What do you do if you have a question about God? What do you do if you need food, clothing, and shelter? How awesome would it be if people didn't dial 911, but they dialed West Meadows 1-1 for those things? And we could be there to provide those for them. You see, there are thousands of people who live around us who think that they are trapped in the past, and the past defines their present, and the present is going to be what their future is. And for those thousands of people, quite often it is divine, defined by a deep sense of fear and shame. But there's a chance for a new identity because God is in the business of bringing new life and making old things new. And we have the opportunity to share the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ with people so that they can have that new life in him. And when they hear of him, when they give their lives to him, he gives them a new name, a new identity, a new hope, and a new life now and eternally. And we can be at the heart we can be at the heart of bringing that new life to our community and beyond. But it begins with us praying. We call you to pray at 9 a.m. every Sunday in the conference room to join us in prayer. It begins with praying. It begins with us praying in our pews and in our homes. It begins with us praying as a congregation to acknowledge, first of all, God's unwavering vision for a community. He has never stopped wanting to draw these people to himself. So it begins with us praying and acknowledging that. But also of repenting of times where perhaps that we as individuals or perhaps the church has lost sight of a vision, has been distracted by things. Let's be honest, there's a history of being distracted by infighting. There's a history of being distracted by church politics. Those things need to be confessed because it's those things that lead to the sin of being moyad. But even when many good things were happening, they may not always have been God things. But then we need to turn from that. 
and turn our eyes towards from the past to the present, to the future that exists beyond us, to bring new life to the land, to the homes, the institutions, to the social fabric, to bring new life to the hearts of the people here and beyond. And ultimately, so that every person has an opportunity to acknowledge and to personally receive the love of Jesus Christ and to claim his sacrifice for them personally. So let's take a moment right now and do just that. Spend a moment in prayer. And after we pray, we'll move to a time of communion, of response as well. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, as Nehemiah declared, you are an awesome God. You are unwavering in your faithfulness to us. You're unwavering in your promise and your commitment to, to your people and your church, but also to those who do not yet know you. You're unwavering your desire that they would know you as you know them. God, we thank you that you bring new life. That in, in every way, in every place, in every person, you have a vision. And that vision is for them to be with you. And to live and to walk according to your will and your ways. God, for the places and the times that perhaps we and those around us, present and past, have been focused upon other things. God, we confess those things. And acknowledge that we want our eyes set forward, set with you. That we want to merge with your will that we may know your, your mission and your vision for us and for this place. Lead us in these ways, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.